Hi, I'm Michael Miller, and this is Speaking of Meditation. Join me for interesting conversations with fascinating people who meditate, why they do it, and how it's changed their lives. I have all these thoughts that go around all the time. I tend to ruminate, and I have to come myself the hell down. And sometimes when I'm meditating, I imagine myself sort of being in a snow globe where all your thoughts are the, the things floating around, and I think of them as like little sparkly things. And by the end of the meditation session, they've all settled quietly to the ground. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Lyle. Sarah was raised in New York City and lived in London for nearly two decades. She was the London correspondent for the New York Times for 18 years and continues to work for the Times, covering a wide range of topics, including sport, culture, media, and international affairs. Recently, she covered the coronation of King Charles and has written a feature on the psychologist Esther Perel. Sarah learned Vedic meditation in November of 2016. So speaking of meditation, here's Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, it's really nice to be here. It is really nice to talk to you. And before we jump into speaking of meditation, I want to talk about a connection that we have, which is, I think you were in London for 18 years. Is is that correct? I was, yes. So an American in London for 18 years. I'm an American. This is my 18th year in London. <laughs> Let's compare notes because you've you've been back now for back in New York for 10 years or for so. For 10 years, yes. Yeah. Yes. And and what's what's your reflection? I'm sure you did a lot of reflecting in the moment of moving back. Where I mean and both countries have changed so much in the last 10 years. But tell me tell me where you're at with the transatlantic experience. So I moved um, to London in the 1990s to get married. My first husband is English, hmm. um, and I'd never really lived abroad. I didn't know a lot of English people, and it was a huge shock to the system. Um, but I, I was lucky to be able to look at it from a, from a perspective of being, you know, working there as well as living there, in a way that enabled me to sort of engage with these issues a lot. I was covering. The UK. So I wrote about politics. I wrote about society. I, you know, I covered all sorts of topics. And so it was a wonderful way to have a distance from the things I was thinking about and not always feel that it was all about me. Mm. Um, and so it was a wonderful job because I got a sort of sense of British people and British culture and society through my husband, who was English, and through his friends. And, and then I could also look at it from the point of view of, of an American as a professional uh, undertaking. And one of the things I have found challenging moving back, which I didn't think I would find, and I should say that over those years, I grew to love the UK, but I also felt um, maybe the way a lot of expats do, a little bit lonely. I felt like mm. no one really that our mentalities as Americans and, and Brits are really different. And, you know, everyone always talks about two nations separated by a common language, but, <laughs> but it's really true. I mean, there, the, you know, a lot of the cliches turn out to be quite accurate about emotional um, openness, about uh, reserve, about so many different things. And I, I started to feel more and more American. I never felt, particularly American before, but just the approach of wanting to talk about everything with everybody all the time, you know, didn't work so well in, in England. 
And so I, I missed home. I missed the mentality of home. I missed people who I knew really well from way back who you don't have to start over every time you see them. You know, that whole mm. thing where you're just like start up from the conversation you had five years earlier. Um, so I was very excited about that. But of course, I came back to America at a really a time of very terrible turmoil. And what I found um, difficult is that I take it really personally. So I, I, you know, being away, I had almost idealized, you know, the United States Constitution and the sort of openness and and sense of possibility in America, which I found lacking in the UK a little bit. You know, this notion you can reinvent yourself, you can move anywhere. It doesn't matter who your family is or how you were raised. You really have a chance to to start over or be someone, you know, do something no one thought you would do, which I found in the UK was harder. Hmm. But when I came back, um, I found myself, and I still do, you know, really disturbed by what I'm seeing in politics, what I'm seeing in um, the divisions in society. And one of the things I loved about um, being abroad is I never took it personally. I could always look at it with some remove. And now that extra uh, layer is gone. Um, and I find it like actually personally upsetting when I see how, how tough things are here and how awful people can be to each other and how no one can talk to each other. And I'm exaggerating, but that's how it feels sometimes. Mm. Does that make sense? It, it does. I witnessed the same. And interestingly, something similar has happened in the UK, it feels, over over the last 10 years. We, we also share the fact that we have daughters with dual citizenship. And when, when my daughter was born right around 10 years ago, I felt like, oh my gosh, you have an American passport and you have a UK passport. And she also happens to have um, New Zealand citizenship. And, you know, there was this sense of possibility. You can work in Europe and you can go to Australia if you wish. And and I joke the the street value of the US passport and the UK passport has really taken a dive over the last 10 years that it doesn't feel like a ticket to possibility in the way that maybe it, it did a decade ago. Well, I was, we were both in, um, uh, in, in London when, you know, the EU seemed like the most amazing thing, you know, when I, I, the Euro came into existence while we were there and it was such an exciting moment when you could, you know, take the channel and go to Europe and feel like it was all part of the same thing. And to see the retrenchment of that with Brexit was really shocking. Well, you must Um, have left right around the time of, of the London Olympics. I left the year after the London Olympics, which was, and I helped cover that. And I remember writing the um, opening ceremony story and just feeling blown away by the the playfulness, the sense of possibility, the strength of it, the multiculturalism of it, the happiness of it. And it seemed like this extraordinary moment where London and England had almost finally gotten over their problems with... Um, uh, post-colonial, you know, the the sort of living in the World War II era, which I feel has stultified them so much. And they were like, we're a modern place. Look at all, look at all this. And then of course, two years later or three years later, there was Brexit, which mm. was like a, a, 
the opposite of what happened at the Olympics, you know? Yeah, so quickly, so quickly. And now it has come around the other direction that, you know, the polls say that, I don't know, something like 70% of people wish that that hadn't occurred. Yeah. And and you think, oh, this is a lot of flip flopping in just a few yeah. years. Yeah. It will all it will all settle out, and it's uh, it does seem bumpy along along the way. How how was it in being back in in New York City itself? Because again, you know, we share these two cities. How how do you feel being a part of New York? I love New York. I'm a real New Yorker. And, you know, I think when you grow up in New York, if you've had a, you know, there's obviously a range of experiences here. And I was lucky to, you know, live in a nice apartment and go to a good school and, and you know, be able to afford the city as a kid. Mm. Um, so I, I've had a nothing but a great experience of it. And <laughs> I, I find people in New York are the most interesting people in the world. And that's one of the reasons I like being here is, you know, I feel like you can go to, and I think London and Paris are, are probably similar in this way, but the variety of people, the variety of experiences, the, the sense of energy and possibility and dynamism that's here. And I love the culture of it. I love walking through the park. I love going to the Met. I love that I, I, my, new husband and I went to a swing dancing thing in Prospect Park in Brooklyn that's like free. Like you just go and they there's a little swing dancing lesson and then everybody dances and there was like 200 people there. And you just, like everyone's always doing weird stuff all the time. And <laughs> it's really fun. <laughs> that's great. That's great. And how does that contrast? Because when you were in London, your first husband was was a writer, and I think I read somewhere that two of you described as a as a literary power couple. And you know, you had access through through the New York Times to a, a certain to events and to locations and to groups of people that the average New Yorker moving to London wouldn't. Now you still have something similar in. In, in New York, that, that business card carries cachet. What, what do you feel personally? Like, what is your personal sense of yourself in the two cities? I think, I mean, London to me, so my wonderful former husband, and we're very close now, and it's such a, he's a great ex-husband, um, was a- <laughs> That's was the a, best kind. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a great father too, to our two girls. Um, he was a, a writer and a publisher, and the London literary world turns out to be quite small. And everything in, and you know, I think the UK, all of it is concentrated in London. So we sort of knew many of the writers you would have heard of, our friends of Roberts. Um, we went to all the, you know, all the events, and and you know, a lot of people in the theater, a lot of people in in all the arts, TV, we knew a lot of people. Um, and and it turned out, you know, half of our friends had sort of gone to university with all the prime ministers. You know, right. it's, it's, and it's, and so, you know, you got a sense weirdly of it being a very small community, actually. You know, we, I would see sort of these same rarefied, but same, same group of people. And one of the great things about New York, I think, is that, that there's just nothing like that. You know, you can go 
to different things and not meet a single person you know, um, because not everyone is doing the same thing and people are so creative here in a way that I, I, I personally didn't run across in London. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so there's an anonymity to the city that I really like. And there's always people who do what you're doing better than you do. There's always people more successful. There's always people more interesting. Um, and so there's always a sense of, of more and more and more here, whereas I feel like in the UK, you can get a little complacent with your small group. Um, mm. And and it's, you know, it's a balance. Neither one is is the right way to do it, really. So the question really is how to find your way in the midst of all that. I don't know. Do you feel the same way? Like when you come back, do you feel a different energy in London than you do in New York? Yes. I mean, teaching in the two cities, it was probably more different 10 or 15 years ago in that, you know, someone would learn to meditate in in London and not talk about it to their friends and barely talk about it to their family. Like they kept it very close. And it, it was... It was a far out thing to learn to meditate. Whereas in New York, there was a mindset of, well, I have a team that helps me with my performance. I have my therapist and I've got my manicurist. I've got my personal trainer and maybe I have a life coach or in a 12 step program. (laughs) And to have a meditation teacher is just adding to the the team that, and so people would talk about it and bring friends along in a different way that over the last years has really changed in London. It's much more uh, acceptable isn't quite the right word. It's, it's much, it's much more integrated into people's lives. An idea that wellness is important and that it's something can be talked about. That being said, the energy of the two cities is, is different. I like London feels a little softer. The, the pace is a little bit different and I, I like that over the longer term. I like then teaching in New York and, you know, I'll, I will go there a week at a time. And that dynamism you're talking about, that real drive, you know, I, I love leaping in into that. But then it's actually nice to take a break from it. I think raising children um, is great in London because of the what you're talking about. The pace of life is slower. You're, it feels like a more humane schedule. You're allowed to go home earlier from work and just Mm. be at home. And I don't know. And I also felt as an American, a lot of the things that gave brought anxiety to my British friends about, you know, all the stuff with kids, school or where they go or what they're wearing. I didn't know the things I was supposed to be worried about. So I didn't worry about them, you know, (laughs) ignorance (laughs) is bliss. (laughs) Exactly. So, and I feel like this, this sort of anxiety around raising children in New York is pretty tough. Um, and Mm. I'm glad I mostly miss that with my kids. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Now, speaking of your kids, let's go to speaking of meditation and I connect the two because when you learned you and your daughter, Alice, learned at the same time. And she would have been mid-early 20s? No, she was still in college. So she oh, was right. probably 20. Yes. And it was great. So she went to Columbia, which is in New York City. And I live in Brooklyn. Um, and she was living uptown. And I was so excited. She was going to be in the city. I could see her all the time. And of course, I didn't see her that often because she was living her own life. And so when she suggested doing this, and she she knew about it because of our great friends in London, 
who meditate with you in London. This yes, yes, Victoria and her whole family. They have sent so many people along over the years. (laughs) You should give them a a percentage. (laughs) So so Lily Spicer is a great friend of Alice's, my daughter, from growing up in London together. They were in the same class. So I think- Lily, by the way, another podcast uh, guest. I think she was one of my very first guests. So so go back and listen to that. You'll you'll love it. And of course, I've known her since she was a tiny thing. So it's very exciting. I love Lily. So Alice suggested doing this. And, and I frankly jumped on it because I thought there's so few things these days that my college student wants to do with me that take more than a meal. So she was like, this is a commitment. It's a couple, couple weekends. Will you do it with me? And I, and I just did it to be with her, really, and to support <laughs> what she wanted to do. That is um, fascinating. So you yeah. came to it in a certain way, not that interested in meditation. Exactly. I had tried, so I, we probably will talk about this a little bit later, but I've always had trouble sleeping. I've always felt the sweet spot for me between anxiety and boredom is mm. hard to find. Yes. So I feel like I, you know, I, it's either super anxious or a little bit bored and depressed. And there's a somewhere in the middle that I always strive for and I've had a hard time with. So certainly the last few years I was in London when it looked like Robert and I were going to split up. And again, he's amicable. He's great. And everybody should have a divorce like our divorce. (laughs) Um, But I was so sad. I was really sad and I was really anxious. And of course I couldn't really talk to him about those things because you can't confide in the person who's, wants Mm. to divorce you. Um, So I tried stuff and I tried things like, um, I don't know if Headspace had started then, but I know at one point I was doing Headspace. I tried um, downloading things that would read soothing things to you and and have some, um, you know, uh, subliminal messages. And they're like, it'll tell you to be calm in the middle of this. And all those things made it worse. Like I'm such a verbal, um, the words, I get tripped up on the words and I start to obsess about what they're saying. And it makes me much more anxious. And that headspace guy who supposedly has such a calm voice, I started hating listening to his voice. Oh no. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And so it made me more upset and more anxious. So I was sort of thinking like I'm one of those people who can't do this, Hmm. you know, like with, And I sort of thought it was like when you watch those shows where they're going to um, hypnotize people and some people can't seem to be hypnotized because they're sort of their mind is against it. And it feels Mm. like you have to be sort of with the program to be susceptible to it. So I felt it was going to be like that. But I was like, I'm going to go for Alice anyway, and maybe I'll get something out of it. But at least I can support her in what she wants to do. And then what was that first session like because you you come along you there's some part of you that thinks i'm not going to be able to do this mm-hmm. i'm glad i'm here with my daughter but uh, it's just a way to spend yeah. time with her and then right away there's no messing about you know you witness the ceremony and you get pulled into a room by yourself and you learn your mantra and within a few minutes your eyes are closed and you're meditating what do you remember about that experience and how you interacted with it or or with the words that were spoken? I thought it was great. First of all, I really liked the other people. I was, you know, again, it's like one of these New York experiences where you go and there's just such an interesting 
lovely, surprising group there. I mean, there were young people and older people. There were some couples. There were some people who looked, you know, agitated like they really needed this and other people who looked like they were probably more suited to it. Hmm. So I loved the energy in the room. I loved the quiet of the instruction. Um, you know, it's like talking to you. You you give off a just a calmness that I always feel better when I talk to you because I feel like you have an inner self that sort of comes out. And I felt that with every meditation session we had that that um, I was in really good hands, that it immediately made me calm down. And I feel one of my um, things that I've had to wrestle with through all this is that I tend very much to pick up the energy of the people around me and, and I have to work harder to have my own energy regardless of what I'm getting back at me. Mm. Um, but with you and the other people who were running these sessions at the time, it was nothing but calm and a sort of sense of you were in good hands. Mm. Well, that's lovely. And I remember it was like a cute little New York apartment. Remember it was the one. Yeah, on um, 17th Street o- yeah, yeah. overlooking the park there. Yeah, and you could hear noises from the outside, but I loved that part of what you guys were telling us was the noises are nice. You know, just you can hear the noise and just observe it and let it go, but it shouldn't, at, you know, don't don't worry about it. And mm. that was a new thing for me because I always felt, ah, you know, everything could could be sort of distracting or whatever. And so I started, it was really relaxing, those sessions. I really enjoyed them. And and what do you remember about spending that time with with Alice? How how was it finding that meditation was a thing right. for you, and yet there you are with her? It was an interesting moment because you know, and you'll find this when your daughter is older. Um, when you get to a point where you're you're sort of taking a backseat to your child, and you're not telling her what to think or how to feel or saying she should do this. It was, she was telling me I should do this. And so I just wanted to listen more than I said things and to try to be open to it as but open to it as possible and seeing her enthusiasm about it made me really happy. Um, and I, and I felt a slight envy because I felt like if I had, um, done this when I was in college, you know, it would have been really helpful through yeah. the earlier parts of my life. Oh, and everybody left- thinks this. Everybody learns to meditate and they're like, yeah. oh, if only I'd done this yeah. five years yeah. ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, yeah. how different things would have been. But, but you know, beyond that, it came at a very, you know, um, time of real turmoil. And you mentioned November 2016, but I think we started in October 2016, the end of October because, and I'm going to remind you, we, we saw each other fairly recently, and I'm going to remind you about what happened then. Um, and I was at that time, um, what was I covering? I can't remember. I wasn't covering politics, but of course politics what was the big thing going on in the U.S. because it was a, coming up to the election, the 2016 election, and um, the existence of I can't even say his name. I don't want to. The former president now in the in our life was was really hard for this country, and there was a tension in the air that was awful. Um, and one of the things that I 
One of the reasons I became a reporter is because I firmly believe that we should all engage with uh, what's going on in the world. Um, we should engage with current events. We should engage with politics. We should educate ourselves. And being a reporter has always been a way for me to learn enough about something that I am calmer knowing than not knowing. For the first time in my life as a reporter, I didn't really want to know about this man. Um, I didn't really want to engage with it. I was assuming Hillary Clinton would win the election. Um, and uh, and so, so there was that all going on in the air as well, this sense of we're, we're in this sort of scary moment, but it's going to be okay when November comes. Hmm. Um, and the reason I sort of brought all that up is because we had completed this, the, the weekends of training. And I remember so clearly there was, I think a Monday night where hmm. everybody was invited to come and do a group meditation. And this was election Eve, 2016. And we came in and everybody was like, Oh my God, you know, Trump, Trump, sorry, I just said his name. <laughs> <laughs> and I, at that point, so this is also like a, I'm actually pretty even traumatized talking about this. I had been assigned on election day in 2016 to write the story about how extraordinary it was that America had its first woman president. And because oh. we because the polls were so skewed toward Clinton. So I got up in the morning, I went to a bunch of polling places in the city. I voted myself um, and was able to, and, and I mostly talked to women who had showed up in all these places. They were wearing pantsuits. You know, older women were talking about um, being sexually harassed as young working women and, and the extraordinary moment we found ourselves in. And we had reporters at Seneca Falls. We had reporters at um, Smith College, wherever Hillary Clinton went to college. We had reporters at her childhood home in Chicago all sending me files about how thrilled people were and people were going to these places and crying. So I wrote this beautiful piece. And as the evening went on, of course, we all know what happened. I was in the office and I had told my younger daughter, who then was in high school, you should come to the New York Times on election night. There's no more fun place to be than our newspaper. It's going to be an amazing night. Um, and of course, as the evening went on, I had to revise my story, revise my story. It was a beautiful story. It was on the front page. It was going to be on the front page. And then by 11 o'clock, they just killed the whole thing. And Isabel showed up around then and she found me crying and like drinking whiskey. Like someone had left some bottle of whiskey somewhere and I was like drinking out. Like it was just, and I almost shouldn't really talk about my politics on this podcast because I'm not really supposed to have politics, but just as a shock to the system, um, it was just a terrible night. And so, but I remember the night before um, we all went to have this meditation and I remember somebody saying, oh my God, you know, we could have the apocalypse tomorrow. And I said, there's no way it's going to happen. And you said, actually, we should leave open the possibility that it might happen. And I don't think it was because you had better insight into politics, but you had maybe better insight into the, you know, the philosophy of the world or whatever. Um, and so I remember 
And I, and by the way, the exact same thing happened with Brexit. So my office had said to me, look, if Brexit is, if, if they vote yes for breakfast, you have to go back to London and help cover it. And I said, <laughs> there's 0% chance it'll happen. So, oh, no. so it was a moment for me where I was like, I have no idea how to even understand any of this, but being in that meditation the night before had slightly prepared me in a way that nothing had. Um, and so, so I'm, it's all very caught up in, in all that for me, the mm. beginning of this. Gosh, amazing. <laughs> I do remember <laughs> that night yeah. so well. And I, I remember the, the person who, who brought it up and, uh, and having that conversation that's <laughs> flashing through my mind. And, and remember you and I met there very recently and I, I was like, I had PS, PTSD from the room. I was like, oh my God, the last time I was in the room was the night before election night in 2016. And I can't, right, right. it just all came flooding back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and where, where are you with your meditation now? So now it's been, if that was 2016, it's seven years or so, yeah. Yeah. not quite, that, that you've been meditating. How has it fit into your life? First, you know, you've, you've got this demanding job and you've got family and you have a new husband and all of that. How have you found just the the mechanics or the day-to-day of making meditation work? I feel that's challenging because my schedule does change a lot. The morning meditation is fine. You know, I wake mm. up, I have some water, I walk around a little bit and then I meditate. That's great. It's the afternoon one that I can't always do at the same time of the day. Mm. I ha- I'm not always at home. Um, and so it's... Um, I try to fit it in and I can't always get to it and I feel bad, but then I try again the next day and then I, I'm okay. And, and one thing that I found and you guys taught us this is there are other times you can meditate, you know, other. So I found like if I'm going to the airport in the end of the day, I meditate in the car. You know, if I'm being in the Uber, I meditate in the back. It's an amazing time to do it. If I'm at the office, which is in Times Square, and I come back to Brooklyn, I meditate in the 25 minutes it takes to get leave oh, to get to the thing. And it's great because when you've worked a hard day and you're all overwrought, I, always, I use the subway usually to read because I do a lot of book reporting as well. I, I review things and I write a column about, about thrillers. So I've always, I love the subway. I use it as a time to read. And I always look forward to it. But now I realize that I have to sort of calm my nervous system before I get home. And I use that time to meditate. I end up feeling so much better than when I got on the subway, even if there's a million people, even if I can't get a seat, even if there's you know announcements about whatever. And I put my ear pods in. What a great invention for moments like this. <laughs> and I can really go to the place you need to go on the subway. And it's really great. Yes. That transition time of mm-hmm. finishing work and then meditating during the commute. I mean, that's quite, it's quite a remarkable time to find, but it does set you up to get home in a different way. I wonder here you are in this relatively new relationship with someone who's not yet a meditator. (laughs) (laughs) We always leave the yet there. What's, what's your experience of entering a relationship as a meditator? I think meditating has helped all my relationships. Um, 
first of all, Bill, my lovely new husband, is super supportive. So even if he's not a meditator himself, he's he's always been someone who, um, to the extent he has anxiety, he gets it out through sports. He, you know, he works out, he rides a bicycle, he swims, he plays tennis. So he tries to go outward rather than inward. Um, but but it doesn't mean he's not um, doesn't care, or isn't interested, or isn't supportive. So it's there's never a question of why are you wasting your time or <laughs> I need you now, any of that stuff. Um, and it helps me a lot deal with the things that come up in all my relationships. Um, and with a new relationship, when you're an adult and you're marrying someone who's also an adult who also has children, who's had a life of his own for all these decades it's really different from starting a life with someone. And one of the things you really have to do is accept that they have a whole life without you, that it's not the same as making a family together. You have two separate families, two separate lives. And the question is how to mesh them together. So a lot of things that when I was younger, when I was newly married, for example, or when I was dating before I got married would have made me, you know, um, made me feel bad, made me me more demanding, made me more anxious. I can really let go with Bill and, you know, not respond in the moment, you know, listen more than I talk, which is always a problem for me when I, and I feel this is very um, gender related in a relationship. You always feel as the woman, you like not only understand yourself, you understand the man better than he understands himself. So you're lecturing him about what he's supposed to do or how he's supposed to feel without really listening to what he's saying. Um, So I've done a much better job of actually listening and trying to take on board what he's saying and not imposing what I think is the right way forward. So that's been really, really good. Um, And it's the same with my kids. I feel so both my girls now are in their early 20s. They both meditate. And one of the challenges I've had as a parent, particularly during this tough period, is how to be a sort of center of gravity for them and not be buffeted or, you know, pushed around by their emotions. And, you know, girls in their boys, girls, any kid who's lived through the pandemic, who's lived through adolescence, who has to do the transition from college to a working life. It's a really tumultuous time in the life of, of a young person. And I remember it so well myself. I remember being really emotional really up and down, really, you know, one day you, it's like being a toddler almost again, you know, one day you're filled with ecstasy, the next day you're filled with despair. And um, I remember being that age and having a parent who would become so alarmed when I was upset that she wasn't as much hard as she tried. She wasn't that helpful because she would get so upset that I was upset that I'd feel worse and I'd feel I had to I had to be okay for her and I wasn't allowed to work it through. And I think I had a harder time with my kids when they were going through adolescence because I was, it was so upsetting to be around a kid who's like, Oh my God, I, my life, you know, they'd say things like my life is over. I, I'm so depressed. I can't blah, da, da. And I'd always feel so upset for them. And what I've tried really hard to do is learn how to, sort of listen to what they're saying and, you know, kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And 
not tell them what to do, not tell them how to fix it necessarily, but make them realize that I am totally got this. I, I understand what they're going through. It's going to be okay. I, I'm here to tell them they're okay. And I think that's, that's all from meditation. Um, Mm. I'm not that reactive and maybe they would disagree. I'm sure it's a work in progress, but I, I feel I've been much better at handling the inevitable stuff they've gone through. Um, and again, the pandemic was is off was awful for young people who were in school, and I was terrified during the pandemic for so many reasons as well. And to have to try to calm down and help them was really um, a great experience, actually. Mm. You know, to feel you could do good in someone else's life, it maybe by being stronger than you actually felt yourself. Well, to be self-contained, you know, again, not looking outside oneself to find like, if my kid is okay, then I'm okay. That actually you are able to hold that space between you because in a certain way you were okay. And I, and Bill has been, you know, having a good relationship with Bill that's also, I think, as I say, helped by my ability to meditate has also been um, a sort of gift, I think, to our family because my two girls now see their, their father has a wonderful partner. I have a wonderful partner and they see both of us being happy in a way that they sadly didn't see us together as much. I mean, we just, you know, and I always felt it's really nice to, have kids see you, um, in a good relationship, you know, it's, um, it provides, you feel you're, you're stronger in yourself, you're stronger in the two of you, and you, you can be a sort of solid place for the kids to come and go from, which is Mm. nice. And it must be nice to know that they're meditating. And like you say, in the way that you wish you had had that for yourself, you get to see that they have it for themselves. Who, by by the way, Alice and Isabel are on retreat, on a meditation <laughs> retreat, right as as we speak. Which, In Portugal. Uh, <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, when they're home, we do it together. Oh, and it's nice. really fun. That's and there great. are times where, you know, one of them or I will feel particularly agitated and the other person makes – you know, whoever's less agitated makes the agitated person meditate right, right. then and always helps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. When your child says to you, uh, mom, have you meditated today? You know, yeah. you need to meditate. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm also reflecting on, I mentioned in the introduction about your interview with Esther Perel, who I think I learned about that interview when Esther uh tweeted what a wonderful article it was, which I thought was, my heart swelled for you in that moment. Aww. She said she felt like she was looking at herself in a way that that was really revealing. And uh, congratulations for, for that. What do you think that meditation, to what degree has meditation impacted your ability to interview and connect on a, on a personal level, sort of merge the personal and professional? I feel like I'm not, I, I've, I haven't needed help uh, interviewing. I feel like that's my job. I'm a pretty curious person anyway. It's always been one of the parts of my job I love. What it has helped me with is 
the sort of performance anxiety I can feel before these interviews. You know, I always feel like I have to bring my whole game to it. I have to be really present for it. I can't be, you know, some people you interview are, are challenging. They're not that receptive or they push back or their, you know, their answers show you they didn't like the question. Um, and that's, I always feel I have to gird myself for that. And with someone like Esther Perel, who's really brilliant and has a big body of work behind her. And I think the, the issue with her is how could I be prepared enough to ask her the right questions in the, you know, space of time we had, um, and not, and, and, you know, and she's been written about a million times as well. So it's not even, so, so it was, how do you find other questions maybe what's, and, and also how do you look at her life and pick out what's interesting enough to talk more about when there's a million things you could talk about? Hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's maybe a function of getting older as well. I feel not scared of the people I interview the way I did when I was a kid. Hmm. Um, and with someone like her, I just felt, and I also feel like if it went, if it doesn't go very well, I don't feel devastated, which I used to feel as a kid as well. I felt so terrible all the time. <laughs> um, and so with her, I don't know, it's, I, I find, I found her absolutely fascinating and um, really surprisingly extraordinary in person. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard when you've, she's such a sort of celebrity. And I think the tendency with her is to, that people who've only come to her, let's say through her podcast or through her public persona, they think she's sort of a celebrity shrink. But when you go back and read her work, when you talk to other therapists who worked with her, who realize how rigorous she is, how dynamic she is, how incredibly well-versed in, you know, in, in the, the history of, of her profession and in the scholarship of her profession, to marry that with what you see this glamorous, sexy, you know, person talking about uh, emotional lives with you is, is what people have a hard time sometimes understanding. And that's what I tried to focus on. And, and with her, I was so intrigued by her, her personal history, hmm. you know, growing up as the daughter of Holocaust survivors, growing up in Belgium and then becoming this international person really through the strength of her own ambition and um, curiosity and brilliance. And that, that's what I really thought was extraordinary about her, mm. actually. Yeah, she is. She's remarkable. Have you had, uh, talked to her or had her? During, or? during the pandemic, she and I um, spoke at a virtual event. So we didn't interact directly, but I, but I got to witness her interacting with, uh, with a quite small group of people. And... And I found her ability to sort of, you, know, you watch a TED talk and there's a certain yeah. presentational quality to that, that she does so beautifully. And for her to drop that and just sit in a chair and actually ask questions, you could see how the podcast, her, her podcast, Where Should We Begin, works in that she's genuinely interested. And in that moment, there's not the Esther personality pasted on top of it. There's, there's a human there. And I think that exactly. is exactly. unusual, the ability to hold both of those facets of personality. I totally agree. And to still be that interested when you're so famous 
Mm. And when you've talked to a zillion people already, and I found that quality when I interviewed her, I mean, it's really hard when you're, and it's even hard in this conversation because I'm used to asking the questions. (laughs) And when you're sort of in the hands of somebody who is good at that themselves, and she started talking to me about myself. And I was like, we don't have time, but I was so seduced into Like, can I set up an appointment? (laughs) (laughs) No. And I was like, I'm bringing Bill in. We're going to talk it through. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, I I love your reflections on interviewing because, uh, you know, interviewing an interviewer is, uh, is a great, a great thing. Um, Well, you're really good at it too, Michael. Well, I so, I've, I've so appreciated our conversation. You know, I, I feel what I like about this is I, I get to find out about you and about your journey in a way that so often in teaching the, the, information is going one way mm-hmm. and and to hear this journey and the, and the impact that it's had on on you and on your your children and on on your new family that you're creating it uh, you know this is this is why we do this 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 is why we meditate and this is why we teach because it's having an effect on on the world and I find your your work and your personhood to be an inspiring example of of all of that, and uh, and I thank you. Um, you've this has been amazing. You are and you are a really good interviewer, Michael. And mm-hmm. you, you know, it's that the curiosity and the kindness, and you did so much research too. <laughs> so thank you. Yes, and well, I, you, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, and I don't know if this is helpful, um, but. Just from the point of view of being in New York right now, Michael and I are talking when these the wildfire smoke from Canada has suffused New York in the last couple of days, which for anyone, you know, con- we're all concerned about climate change, but this has brought brought it home to New Yorkers in a, a, a suddenly new way. Um, and it was a really hard place to be yesterday. I could smell a fire in my house or, you know, it smelled like if you were you know, in, in the suburbs and someone was illegally uh, burning their rubbish. Um, right. And that's, you know, to have it follow you indoors is, is really frightening. And it was sort of orange outside. I mean, everyone's seen the photos, but thank God I had meditation as a tool because mm-hmm. I think if I, if it had been before I was meditating, I would have just gotten more and more anxious, quite honestly. Um, mm-hmm. And I was able to sit there with my feelings, the way we've been taught, I think for me, meditation, so I have all these thoughts that go around all the time. I tend to ruminate. I tend to perseverate. Great new word I learned mm-hmm. recently. Beautiful. And I have to calm myself the hell down. And sometimes when I'm meditating, I imagine myself sort of being in a snow globe where all your thoughts are the the things floating around. And I think of them as like little sparkly things. And by the end of the meditation session, they've all settled quietly to the ground. And that's how I felt yesterday while all this apocalypse felt like it was going on outside, at least in myself, I had settled it and I could handle it better because I'd calm myself down. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. It does. And of course, you know, action is required around climate change and us being anxious about it doesn't actually make it any better. It makes, it just makes us feel worse. And so we can be calm and look at it clear-eyed, then maybe we can put ourselves into action in a way that that makes a change and and that we can extrapolate to anything in our life. Exactly. 
Exactly. Sarah, it has been such, such a pleasure speaking with you. (laughs) I really loved it, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. And we will connect in one of these cities very, very soon. I hope so. All right. Bye for now. Okay. Thank you. Speaking of Meditation is written and produced by me, Michael Miller, with direction by Jillian Lavender and assistance from Emma Ray. Editing is by James Green at Green Podcast Productions. Original music written and performed by Rich Jock. Graphics by L and L. Speaking of meditation, what are you noticing? Who's benefiting? And how are you staying inspired? 